Well. Well, pressing on then with the fourth designation under a trespass offering, we have dishonesty in holy things. This then could be, and it was, dishonesty against God. And this could take the form of a procedural error, a willful procedural shortcut. It could take the form of a worshiper trying to slip a blemished animal by the priest. Um, Things of that degree. You'll just have to reflect as to how the counterpart of this might carry out in our own worship. Do we cut corners uh, in our worship, in our preparation, let's say, in our leading of a given class, um, this or that? The prophet Malachi asked, Will a man rob God? The deity has made demands upon us, and to deny him then is to rob him. God is robbed when we neglect our duty in the ecclesia, when we fail to support the efforts of others to serve him, and to further the efforts made to spread the knowledge of the gospel, in contrast to just being content to sit on it like the one-talent man. God is robbed when we fail to succor those in need, the least of these, his children, to stand against error, to tolerate godly slurs, to tolerate inappropriate behavior or dress, etc., etc. Number five in the trespass scheme of things was ignorance. This I found to be interesting. This is perhaps the most far-reaching of all requirements. If a man transgressed any of the commandments of the Lord, though he wist it not, or knew it not, he was guilty as soon as he found out his error and had to bring his trespass offering. Ignorance can be blameworthy then. God has set forth his requirements plainly in the word, and if we do not find out what they are, We are guilty. Therefore, there is the sin of willful ignorance. And this, then, is willful ignorance to avoid responsibility or involvement is also sinful. It has been well said that failure in this respect is not ignorance. It is the sin of ignorance. We are not to be bumpkins in God's service. And we are not to levitate along saying, I don't want to get involved. This then has far-reaching ramifications. It's uh, obviously different from changes due to aging or disease. I go into the other room and I stand there and I say, now let's see, what am I here for? (laughs) That's not necessarily willful ignorance. Number six, failure in trust against man, coming from Leviticus 6, 1 to 2. It was a trespass to accept a neighbor's possessions with a promise to safeguard them and not to keep one's promise. So negligence or dishonesty in this was regarded as a lie, not to properly tend 
one's animals or to watch his goods while they were away, and we made the commitment to do that. Failure in trust against man. Number seven was one-sided bargaining. It was wrong to enter into partnerships imposing all the burdens on the partner. The word fellowship conveys the idea of bargaining. Some margins say that the Hebrew means putting of the hand. So we understand that. We give a man our hand. That, it, that, is a, that should be a binder of our intent and what we'll fulfill. We are to be fair in all of our dealings, just weights and measures in the temple all factored into this. Number eight was taking by violence. Not only does this refer to force, it also refers to the domination of others by a strong-willed and determined person. And we all know brethren who tend to want to dominate, and sisters can do that too. Um, it's, it's psychological manipulation. This is not to be so amongst relationships with brethren. Relationships of servants and stewards could result in situations like this. So you get the flavor now of these trespass offerings as to how it was necessary to learn how to interact between brethren. And it was much more of a, of a concern when you're dealing with a couple million Hebrews now all trying to live within a given encampment and or a country. So Yahweh in his wisdom laid out these various designations. Ten, the number of ordinal completion. These have all their little strings and tangents. Number nine, deception or false pretenses. Here is the use of fraudulent practice intended to deceive one's neighbor. We might say, as Jacob deceived Esau. The Gibeonites deceived Joshua. Delilah deceived Samson. And Ananias and Sapphira tried to deceive Peter. Deception is a characteristic of the present world. And it's not to be found numbered amongst us. Stealing was number 10. Stealing by finding something that had been lost and lying about its finding, even to the use of an oath. Finders keepers, users weepers. We learned that as kids, didn't we? So the trespass offering was required via the priest after a confession of one's sins. And if the offerer could afford it, um, it had to, he had to bring a female from the flock, a lamb or a kid of the goats. Um, if he could not afford an animal, he could bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. The very poor could bring the tenth part of an ephah of fine flour to the priest, who then took a handful, burned it on the altar, and that was that. Um, neither frankincense nor oil was to be put upon it. Uh, it was not a substitute for food, therefore. It was to be burned on the altar. Um, the prevailing principle of blood-covering sin overshadowed and made the giving of the meal, as in the case of extreme poverty, validity. I recall a discussion with a brother who was bent on convincing me that the skins provided in Eden 
were not necessarily animal skins that necessitated blood covering. That was in the day of Corfam shoes. And he was trying to tell me that it could be some other type of leather or skin. And he took me to this verse that there, see, there can be sin covering without blood shedding. The only way this meal offering for extreme poverty was allowed was because of the prevailing canopy of the burnt offerings for the nation morning and evening, and thus the canopy of blood-covering sin was still intact. In the burnt offering, frankincense, which represents phrase, and oil, which represents gladness, was used. Here, neither of them were allowed to be used. Now, regarding the female lamb or goat, which was designated in Leviticus 5, verse 6, the lesson was to inject the sequence of the original sin in Eden. This then would have been brought to mind. But it also not but it, it also served as a reminder that if it was through woman the transgression was precipitated in Eden, it was through the woman that salvation would be through in the blessing of the Christ child at Bethlehem. So this then would be the teaching and the remembrance of that. In the sin offering um, referenced in Leviticus 4.32, a female lamb then was specified for the offering of a common person. And it was uh, uh, always... uh, Another thought on the female injection here as a legitimate offering was that it needs to take our mind to the ecclesia, which is a female entity, is it not, in gender and type, the bride of Christ, and it was therefore representative of the womb of the contemporary ecclesia, out of which is to be the continual birthing of goodly seed and followers of Christ. Now, in the case of sin through ignorance, um, the holy things of the Lord, a fine was also levied. And it was a a fine of a double tithe, tithe, or representing one-fifth was added. And this was as determined by the priest. The offerer didn't determine what his own fine would be, the priest would determine what a fine of recompense would be worthy if one transgressed against his brother in one of these categories. This was paid in shekels of silver according to the priest's estimation of the damage. Um, There is one close connection between the trespass offering and the sin offering, The sin offering, you recall, was for sins of ignorance. The difference was that while the sin offering was concerned with sin which the transgressor was unaware of, the trespass offering related to sins, many of which the sinner was conscious of. And by its name, trespass, a clear infringement of divine law against God or man is implied. It means overstepping the mark. 
is what trespass. So, in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses, the overstepping of the mark in our daily sojourn. The offering is sometimes called then the guilt offering rather than the trespass offering. And we should count then a lively conscience as a blessing. As in all these offenses, the trespass offering foreshadowed what the Lamb of God bore on the cross in covering our sins. His sacrifice was typified by the lamb, the goat, the turtle doves, and the pigeons when they were used. He was the righteous one made an offering for us. His perfect character was a contrast to all our niddly sins that the trespass offering exposed and atoned for, all coming together in the perfect offering in Christ, a testimony of what we are now in our flesh. And so I'll read from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 to 21. Um, into the record here. Verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we beg you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. The trespass offering scenario then was a reconciliation process. For he hath made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We should always understand then that sin is a wrong to be righted. It needs to be identified and it needs to be left at the altar and we need to look at sin covering as an opportunity. Now, this is obviously paramount in God's eyes because we have the sin offering and the trespass offering, and it's big. Sin management is a big scriptural principle. I'll speak to that a little bit in third hour if we can get there. Now, the trespass offering then emphasizes the intimate relationship between Jesus and individual members. We, in turn, practice those principles in our relationships with brethren and all men in general. And this is the example or the lesson that Jesus taught when, in John 13, he washed his disciples' feet. Now, that's worthy of reflection upon in itself. This is a reminder of the concept of sin management, because recalling the blemishes, obviously the feet is antitypical of a person's walk. And it's the area that becomes soiled and tarnished in our worldly sojourn on a daily basis. On a daily basis. Recall that Peter questioned. And Jesus said, What I do thou knowest not, 
now, but thou shalt know hereafter. So this principle would sink home to Peter, and it needs to be something that we understand and reflect upon as well. He was teaching the necessity of ongoing, reciprocating service we extend to each other and the need to routinely wash our feet because in our sojourn, our walk will be routinely tarnished through sins committed. And thus the ten steps in the trespass offering, which you recall in the terms of the number ten, really has a broader apron to it. Jesus knows all of our personal sins. Our personal angel, no doubt, knows them all and keeps a list in, the, in our book of the lives. And it is something that will require mercy at the judgment seat to cover. We must exercise ourselves in confessing our sins, understanding what went wrong, and not praying merely, forgive us of our sins and trespasses, as if to hit the exit button, and that's the end of it. I would suggest that you adopt a little uh, schematic in your mind when you are seriously taking yourself to task and tick through things. Chop them up and dice them up. Get to the root of it, and that way you'll learn to be able to put them off and hopefully never go there again. There are always plenty of infractions that we can fill the place of them. To exercise in heart-rending contrition is in dissecting our trespasses so that we may avoid them in the future. This again occurs in our holy place, which is in the recesses of our own individual hearts and minds. For us, it is our heart and quiet meditation. Prayer, like the ascending cloud of incense, represents the summation of all that we are. Need to keep moving. We move into the burnt offering now. The burnt offering was the the big offering, the the predominant offering, if you will, certainly pre-mosaically. It taught the total consumption of sin in nature and in commission. It was it was expiatory or atoning. So you can see why it was effectual in pre-mosaic times. It was atoning. The carbon remains typified a new creation, the residue from the altar taken to a clean place outside the camp represents a new entity. Carbon is a chemical entity, different than the original product. So we can tuck that away. There were three animals and two birds named in the law as suited for sacrifice under the burnt offering. The ox or the bullock, the sheep, goat, dove, and pigeon. These, you recall, were all offered by Abraham in the great sacrifice of the covenant that was made with him in Genesis 15.9. The personal burnt offering... 
was a free will or a voluntary offering. So you get the idea that some worshipers may not bring a burnt offering, but only rarely. The word burnt sacrifice is rendered to ascend or a flame or smoke, to ascend upwards. And that then is what the burnt offering did, is it simmered on, simmered on the altar um, all day and all evening when it was a national offering. This teaches that the fire did not destroy the offering, but rather it changed it to ascend in an acceptable form to Yahweh, getting back to the changing or the perfection or us stepping into a living sacrifice role. It's in type occurs when the word takes possession of a man and changes him to another product, a sanctified product. The ascending smoke typifies this new product. It rises as a sweet-smelling savor to God. So the burnt offering was accounted as having an expiatory, an ex as having an atoning effect on the offerer. <clears throat> this is one reason why the offering had to be specifically washed inside, the cleansing figuratively then of any ill blemishes that might be lurking there. This is what was implied by the washing of this particular offering inside. Now, reading from Hebrews 10:16, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. So, a bullock was expected to be brought if one owned a herd, or was a priest, or was a dignitary. A sheep or a goat, if one owned a flock, or if one was a commoner. Turtle doves or young pigeons were acceptable if one were poor and destitute. The fire in the altar was never to go out after it was first divinely ignited by Yahweh in Leviticus 9, verse 24, when the sacrificial system came online. The offerer once again was to place his hand on the head of the offering, thus to completely identify himself with it. And the rendering of place one's hand is better rendered with firmness. You had to bear down on this animal's head, and you had to, and you had to feel the life that was in it, and you had to make the connection. The offerer took the animal to the north side of the altar and he killed it. And you can read Golgotha on the north side of the city. This is where Christ died. And then he cut its throat. The priest collected the blood and sprinkled it around the altar. The offering having been skinned and cut into pieces, all the parts washed carefully was put on the fire. The head and the fat were placed on the altar first. The inward parts and the legs were to be washed before being placed on the fire. In the other four offerings, you recall, there was an edible portion for the priest. But in this case, for the burnt offering, all the priest got was the skin. This was given to the priest. The skin 
or the coats would have been a perpetual reminder to the priestly order that it was the coat of skins in Eden that they all benefited from. They could then, of course, take the skins and tan them, and it was a little source of income for them. But the teaching would always be the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, and I need this covering just as the offerer does. Jesus was both the offering and the offerer throughout all of this. John 6:51. The bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Jesus was the offering, and he was the offerer. Jesus willfully laid down his life, even though he said, Think not that I could pray the Father, and he would give me ten legions of angels, and um, I could escape this obligation. So, the actual, in the actual sacrifice, everything was to be figuratively consumed. It had to all be burned up. And in Jesus, he was totally consumed as well. He poured out and he gave his all. He was spent. And his sacrifice consequently ascended to God upwards as a sweet-smelling savor and the acknowledgement of the quality of Christ's sacrifice was his resurrection. We put on Christ, don't we, in Galatians 3.27 when we're baptized. And that, that means to put on means to be enclosed in a garment. Invest with a garment. The the priest would make this synapse as well. We are invested with the garment or the robes of salvation when we are baptized into Christ. The sacrifice of the burnt offering then was cut into pieces and uh, it was inspected, of course, and washed so that there be no inner blemishes and live animals have tumors just like humans do, that would be a disgrace to offer an animal with that. The preparation was important, just as our preparation should be thorough in our personal preparation to taking the emblems and how we should look at our personal worship routine as well. The head was severed, the appendage then of the willing and magnificent brain is represented by the head of the animal. The brain that fed continually upon the words of truth and that took those words of truth and manifested them in a walk style. This we look at Jesus in total fulfillment. Within the appendage of the head were the all-seeing and discerning eyes, eyes of discretion, eyes of understanding, the ears that could hear and digest, the teeth, the rumination all lifelong of an individual's uh, mastication of the Word of God. The inward part represents the seat of the emotions and the driving will of an individual. The second wind, if you wish, the second wind that we all have to muster up when we come up against the wall of 
of slothfulness or discontent. We have to push through it and keep going because our sojourn is not over yet. The legs represent this. The fat represents the health and vitality found amongst the inner organs, which is nature's way of feeding the inner organs. And it also represents vitality. It represents stored energy. And it's time to unlock and draw upon that energy. It represents zeal as manifested in God's service. Recall the zeal that bubbled up in Christ's gut when he saw the, the usury and the trespass and the, um, uh, of his father's temple. The zeal of my father's house hath eaten me up when Jesus threw over the tables of the money changers. It welled up in him. Jesus is a man of character. He's a man of strength. Um, he's not. He came firstly as a suffering servant and the Lamb of God. He will return as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. God said on two occasions, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He said this twice. The second time was on the Mount of Transfiguration when he was acknowledging that Jesus was on perfect track. My beloved Son, I am pleased with your progress. I'm pleased with where you're going. And I know that you can complete the obligation that looks so formidable before you. In Leviticus 1.5, Christ is the altar. He's also the mercy seat of the ark. And he's called our propitiation. The burnt offering was one of the three sweet savor offerings because they typify Christ in his willful devotion to doing his Father's will. Willful, unflinching devotion to doing the will of God is what makes our worship a sweet-smelling savor. Now, remember in the burnt offering, there was no specific sin targeted. Just man's desire for fellowship, yet always an acknowledgement of his state. But there was that desire and the inner feeling that this is appropriate and that I want to draw near to you in worship. Now, we can take a look at Leviticus 6 for just a minute because this is most interesting. A lot of figure in this verse. Leviticus 6, and it's 8 to 13. Under the heading, The Law of the Burnt Offering. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. It is the burnt offering because of the burning upon the altar all night unto the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be burning in it. And, and the priest shall put on his linen garment, and his, gar and his linen breeches shall he put upon his flesh, and take up the ashes which the fire hath consumed with the burnt offering on the altar, and he shall put them beside the altar. Always making that linkage, you see. And he shall put off his garments and put on other garments and carry forth the ashes outside the camp unto a clean place. 
And the fire upon the altar shall be burning in it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order upon it. And he shall burn thereon the fat of the peace offerings. The fire shall ever be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. So as a sidebar, the peace offering... uh, was an accompaniment to the burnt offering. Although the peace offering was a standalone offering, it was also an ancillary offering. And, by the way, the drink offering was always an ancillary offering. It was never a standalone offering. And it could be poured out just like this. A pint and a half of wine poured on the altar, and that was the drink offering. We'll talk about that in a minute. Now, this reference read here in Leviticus is most interesting. You'll notice that there was a change of raiment involved here. This was, I would suggest, a putting on of immortality at a given point in time in this, in the figure this offering is pointing to. The ashes represent a new substance as the result of the faithful smoldering of that sacrifice for a designated point of time. For us, read throughout this dispensation and our mortal lives. This is throughout the Gentile night of which we are now a part of. The clean place out the camp speaks to an order above and beyond the Mosaic order which we have considered, and we have consequently the, the Christ altar that this is all to be tied or closely associated with. So in the kingdom age, when sacrifice is reinstated, and these will be, the immortal sons of Zadok, the order of Melchizedek, will officiate before the prince in the great Ezekiel's temple. So you look at this little sequence, you see a change of garments, you see the fire. We'll talk about fire a little later. And you'll see that the offering then is taken outside the camp to a clean place. Fire is a big ingredient of altar sacrifice and its acceptance. And whether there is a sacrifice at all, it must never be allowed to go out. Fire, briefly, is God's manifestation in various forms and circumstances. It represents the ongoing and continual spirit word of God. It is the cleansing, consuming influence of divine truth which purges out sin. It's his divine and unadulterated word, and it's what drives everything, especially here, as it constitutes a successful and accepted sacrifice of any kind. A burnt offering where the fire goes out is not a burnt offering, and it's not an accepted offering. Now, we have a reference in Luke 12. Let's go to Luke 12. This is also an interesting verse. I'm going to read from Luke 12, verse 49 to 50. 
And I can ask you, what do you think about this? I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will I if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I constrained till it be accomplished? Jesus was the precipitator of a revolution, was he not? He came in the fullness of time. He came as a body. He came as a recognized, as a recognized individual. Um, he occupied space and time, and he had a pithy message of redemption. And he started a blaze back then. And that fire has not yet been ex- extinguished, and the ba- battle of Genesis 3.15 is still in effect. Jesus had not yet been crucified. He had a baptism of his own fire. He was to be consumed on the altar yet through the crucifixion that was pending and looming. He had his own death, burial, and resurrection ahead of him. But he started and he kindled something. And it's still in effect. And this kindling process has taken its toll and it's needs to be a realization as to what this fire started. 53. The father shall be divided against the son and the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, and the daughter against the mother. The mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And he said also to the people, when you See a cloud rise out of the west, straight away you say, there cometh a shower, and it is so. So learn to discern things. You can discern and anticipate weather changes. Why can you not discern scriptural things, in essence? This is a little reference to fire, which we'll talk about more third hour. It's a most interesting subject. On this overhead, then, the continual burnt offering recognized the need for atonement. That was always a recognition. It recognized and acknowledged total dependence and allegiance to God. It it, It recognized that he was the provider of our daily bread during our lives and that we approached him through a continual prayer system, which was a type of the ascending smoke and smell of that altar offering. Next time you're cooking flesh on your barbecue, take time to savor the smell of that. It is a pleasant smell. Jesus smoldered all night in prayers in Gethsemane. He had figuratively been scrutinized all his life by his family and peers, the Jewish and the Roman hierarchy, but no sin or blemish was detected. He had been figuratively broken or parted in that his body of sacrifice was scrutinized 
from his intellect, his rightly dividing the will of God to his application of the word of God as he interacted with brethren and society representing his consistent faultless walk after the burning of the various parts of the burnt offering. Now, in Leviticus 6.10, then, just as Paul spoke of his life poured out in God's service, you recall, the ashes of that burnt offering and that little scenario there in Leviticus 6 is referencing the national burnt offering, albeit, but it is the same procedure for personal burnt offerings that were brought. And so in verse 11, now the glorified Christ or priest upon his return is dressed fittingly in his garb of immortality. He recognizes his righteous remnant still smoldering or still found so doing upon his return. That's key for us, isn't it? We don't need to uh, take a holiday somewhere along the line in our worship of God and our, our trek through this life. There are no spiritual holidays. We want to keep trekking so that there is no disconnect even unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, we'll end this topic of the burnt offering and we'll keep pressing on. The next one is the meal offering. In your Bible, it's probably rendered meat offering. It needs to be called a meal offering because there was no flesh involved. It was strictly grain. It was about preparation and works. And it was also an ancillary sacrifice. It's about preparation or our life service behind the scene that we bring to God as our offering. It's interesting. Um, let's see. King James calls it the meat offering. That's King James the first. Um, it was under his translation that he decided to render this a meat offering because back then in merry old England, no one was ever invited for a meal or a banquet without meat. So he thought that he could improve upon things by uh, calling this a meat offering. The meal offering is regarded as ancillary to the burnt offering. This was another voluntary offering or free will offering made when one was felt to do it. Now, it's called an oblation in, uh, in uh, verses 4, 7, and 13 there in Leviticus 2. The term oblation is another term for offering, uh, especially a sweet savor offering. It was a voluntary one. And oblation means to approach, to cause to come near, a sacrificial present to come near to the altar. So the meal offering may re be regarded as a present that the worshiper wanted to bring to the altar for Yahweh. What a lovely relationship. 
One thing that has driven me early on, I read a book called The Successful Professional Practice uh, a million years ago. And it was talking about patient relationships. And there was a chapter on potlatch, P-O-T-L-A-T-C-H. Potlatch is an Indian term which means a little gift in dealing with others and a patient. Always give your patient more than they expect. This factors into the meal offering, a voluntary little gift brought by the worshiper because he wants to. <laughs> 